From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. If you have a world where no country is prepared to exert or capable of exerting global leadership, then what you really have is a G0. Lots of leadership, but no global leadership. That's Ian Bremmer. He's the founder and president of Eurasia Group, a political risk consulting firm, and G0 Media. He also recently had a successful side gig as a stand-in for me as the host of Stay Tuned. When it comes to breaking down the complexities of geopolitics, Ian is my go-to guest. In the latest international headlines, President Biden marked his presence at the G20 summit in India, where the leaders of China and Russia were notably absent. And the UN General Assembly kicked off this week in New York City as leaders debate tackling various global crises. Ian and I discuss the significance of it all, including the many series of G summits, Putin's current predicament, and the shifting global order. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Mike who writes, Hi Preet, I continue to listen to all your podcasts. Well, thanks, Mike. Mike goes on to write, I have a question about gag orders. Presuming that one is issued against Trump, what happens when he almost certainly violates it? How is it enforced? Well, that's a great question. Obviously, you're referring to what prosecutors have filed in recent days, a request for a narrow gag order against former President Donald Trump, reciting that time and again, Donald Trump has said offensive things and derogatory things about people involved in the trial process, the prosecutor, the judge, sometimes people who might become witnesses at the trial. It's unclear whether the judge will grant the gag order. And one potential reason why it's uncertain is the uncertainty of how to enforce it. So I guess the options are, among other things, a financial penalty if Donald Trump violates the gag order. I don't know how much effect that will have. As one commentator wisely pointed out, like a day or two after Donald Trump was held liable in a case brought by E. Jean Carroll, he went right back on television and defamed her again after a $5 million judgment was found against him. So I don't know that financial penalties will do much to enforce a potential gag order. The other thing that the judge has threatened to do is move up the trial date. Right now it's scheduled for March of 2024. Possibly, if she makes good on what she said earlier, the violation of the gag order would cause her to move up the trial date 
which is some sanction, but obviously doesn't stop Donald Trump from making continued statements in the public. The real tool that judges tend to have when there's a violation of conditions of release, or in this case, a related violation of a gag order, is to put the person in jail, detain the defendant pending trial. Now, some might ask, well, why can't that happen here? I mean, I guess it could. It's possible. That would be a big deal, given that Donald Trump is running for president again, is likely to be the nominee of his party, and primaries start in relatively short order. So some people are speculating that given the difficulty of enforcing a gag order and the notoriety that would attach and the complaints that would attach to putting Donald Trump in prison pending trial, she might not issue the gag order at all. By the way, I would also note that Donald Trump clearly would be irritated and aggrieved by any kind of gag order, narrow or otherwise. But there is, I think, reasonable speculation that his lawyers, who want to make sure the trial proceeds properly, may not be aggrieved at all. This question comes in an email from Anne, who asks, what kind of punishment would be normal in a case like Hunter Biden's illegal gun purchase? I appreciate your reports. Well, we're getting a little bit ahead of the game. Uh, As people remember, Hunter Biden was set to plead guilty to a tax charge and get a pretrial diversion with respect to some gun charges. That plea fell apart, as we've talked about on the podcast before. And just in the last few days, the special prosecutor now, David Weiss in Delaware, filed an indictment in three counts relating to gun purchase by Hunter Biden. So he's only indicted. He's not convicted. Should he be convicted? Your question, I think, is a reasonable one. I haven't run the precise guidelines range, but I would imagine that offense, a 922G offense, would carry a low single-digit years guidelines range for someone like him with no criminal history and given the nature of the charges in this case. Bear in mind, there's no mandatory minimum with respect to these charges. There's just the sentencing guidelines, which for some years now, have been discretionary, not mandatory, on federal district court judges. And remember, the backdrop of this case and these particular charges, whether or not the plea agreement fell apart at some point at a proceeding, is that at one point the government seemed content with allowing Hunter Biden not to be prosecuted at all for these same gun offenses. They were going to allow him to enter into pretrial diversion, meaning no guilty plea at all and no prison sentence associated with this charge. So I wouldn't be surprised, given the nature of the offense given the first-time offender status of the defendant, and given the context of what the government had previously agreed to, which is known to the judge and can be taken into account because the judge is a human being, I wouldn't be surprised if the sentence is quite low. This question comes in an email from Stuart. Hi, Preet. Love the podcast. Here's my question. If the Georgia RICO trials get split into two or more groups, a speedy group and a slower group, do the results of the early trial impact others that follow? Can the later trial refer to conclusions of the first, or must it prove them again? Is it the same judge? Well, Stuart, that's a very good question and a smart question. Um, Obviously, you're referring to the fact that the trial will proceed in stages in Georgia. There were 19 defendants charged by Fannie Willis, the district attorney there. It looks like we're going to have a trial at the end of October with respect to two defendants, and then maybe the rest of the defendants, minus those who might plead guilty, will be tried at a later proceeding. Maybe there'll be two, maybe there'll be three. We just don't know yet. As a general matter, I don't know of any circumstance in which the result of an earlier trial will become known or be disclosed to the jury or juries in subsequent trials. I don't see any way that, in particular, a verdict of guilty, but also one of acquittal, would be disclosed to a jury at a later trial. It'd be prejudicial. It's not relevant to the guilt or innocence of the next parties that are tried in the second or third trial. So that's not coming in. However, there are two other things I would say about this. First, 
if there had been rulings made about a, a, the admissibility of evidence or something else in the first trial, given that it will be the same judge for the subsequent trials, unless there's a change, the reasoning that the judge would apply to the admissibility or non-admissibility of that evidence would probably carry on and be the same reasoning in a subsequent trial. So you can expect some consistency in rulings about evidence and other matters. The second thing I would say is you might have some overlap in witnesses testifying at a first trial and a second trial, right? I think you'll almost certainly have that. So if it's the case that witness A testified in a certain way at the first trial, and then that same witness testifies differently or in contravention of the earlier testimony at a second trial, the cross-examining lawyers will absolutely have the right to impeach that witness, in other words, present that witness with inconsistent prior testimony in order to cast doubt on the credibility of the witness. Now, what I've seen happen is the jury is not told what the prior proceeding was, and certainly, as I already mentioned, was not told the result of the prior proceeding. But in fairness, if you have inconsistent statements in testimony at a prior trial and a current trial, you have to be able to let that come out. I'll be right back with my conversation with Ian Bremmer. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common, it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking, what does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com preet. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned.
Ian Bremmer is an expert on geopolitics and foreign policy. He often joins the show to discuss important international news. Ian Bremmer, welcome back to the show for the umpteenth time. Preach. <laughs> How are you? Preach. How are you doing, man? I'm very good. Um, for those of, of you who are listening for the first time, uh, I have anointed Ian Bremmer, the Regis Philbin of Stay Tuned, insofar as Regis Philbin was the most common guest on David Letterman's show. So Ian, there's a lot to talk about. Um, I thought we'd start with the G20 summit. First of all, what is the G20 summit and why is the number 20 operative there? Uh, number 20 is operative because we're talking about the 20 largest economies in the world uh, at the time that it was created. One of the reasons Poland was a little upset because they were 21, right? So like, well, should really According to whom? According to G0? Not according to G zero, no, no, no. Uh, Poland does, was upset. Just U.S. News and Poland, World Report is it know? the U.S. News and World Report ranking? It's the like rankings. It? It's the rankings. Yeah, the U.S. News. Yeah, a lot and a lot of a lot of a lot of universities have uh, have pulled out of that uh, of late. Is that not true? It is, but you're getting off topic. So no, I, you it's, you actually. It's a semi serious question. It's a semi serious question. How are the rankings of the world's largest economies determined? Uh, I mean, I, I would use World Bank figures personally, uh, but I mean, for example, <laughs> what does there, the are, G20 use? there are people out there uh, that talk about power purchasing parity, uh, which means that China would already be larger than the United States, which is uh, not the way that most people in the, in the world think about GDP. Um, and I don't actually know what the original... Huh. Estimation. I have stumped there. Ian Bremmer. So wait, no, so that's, that's kind of random. So that's is it? True, but yeah. is it still twenty countries, or is it more? Well, it's still twenty countries, uh, but also multilateral organizations do come. So, for example, the EU is a member of the G twenty uh, outside e of the twenty. Outside of the twenty, uh, this year the Africa Union right. was invited. Um, to formally join. So that means that Africa, which, you know, needs representation, now will have representation ongoing the entire continent through the Africa Union seat. Um, the IMF, uh, the, um, the United Nations, uh, the World Bank, the leaders of those multilateral institutions also all attend the G20. Uh, the presidency rotates uh, from one country to the next on a yearly basis. There are all of these ministerial summits that happen um, in the run-up to the big leaders summit that happens that we just saw this past week. Can we do a taxonomy of these? There, there are a lot of summits. I think everyone always assumes that everyone knows what every summit is about and the importance of it. There's the G20, which we'll get into more detail about in a moment because it just concluded. Is there, am I right, there's a G7? There's a G7. It used to be the G7 plus one. Before that, it was the G7. Um, the, so what's the, the G G7? The G7 are the advanced industrial democracies, the most powerful among that grouping. And uh, they are a group of much more like-minded similar political systems, similar economic systems. Uh, and so if you wanted a group of countries that support rule of law, or at least in principle uh, say that they will um, support free market capitalism, have democratic systems, that's what the G7 is all about. Is India uh, in the G7? 
uh, India is not in uh, the G7. As I said, advanced industrial democracies, which means ri rich countries. India is not considered advanced. They're not considered. Even it's a democracy. Does India want to be in the G7? Uh, well, uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, it, I'm sure that if someone said, hey, you want to come and be a part of that meeting, I think Modi would say, sure. But advanced doesn't refer to the state of your political system. It refers to the state of your economy and how wealthy you are. And on a per capita basis, of course, India is a, it's a large economy, but it's an incredibly poor economy still. But isn't, isn't it, I, my recollection is, in, according to recent data, India was the sixth largest economy in the world. Is that not correct? Yeah, but it's still a very poor country. Uh, I'm just trying to figure out, if it's not U.S. News and World Report, right, right. the basis on which we're deciding which countries are advanced and or large economically, right. and, if it, and if it makes sense. I mean, does it make sense for India not to be in the G7? So the interesting thing, of course, is that when you set up these institutions, they make an awful lot of sense for the leaders that set them up. Then over time, like almost immediately after you set it up, things change, but the institutions are sticky. Yeah. And so over time, the institutions make less sense. I mean, the G20 is a newer manifestation that initially was created at the minister of finance level. And then after the global financial crisis, um, it was especially with China being so much more important economically than it had been heretofore, there was a recognition that you cannot respond to a big global economic crisis only with the G7, it's not effective. So at that point, they created the G20 at the head of state level, initially with special meetings, and then basically installed it as new global architecture. And you could argue uh, that the reason the G20 was required is because the balance of power changed a lot from the days where the G7, you know, sort of nominally ran a lot of big global affairs. Are there any other big Gs? Uh, there's the BRICS, uh, and that's not a big G, but that's another new piece of architecture. Initially, a notion, a concept created by Jim O'Neill at Goldman Sachs that was talking about these emerging markets that were the largest emerging markets at the time, and that he and they expected would become the next new, the rise of the rest, you know, uh, they'd become the next new major powers on the global stage. They did not include South Africa at the time. Uh, so it was brick, but S because it was just plural. Those countries and South Africa decided, hey, we like this formulation for our own club because it will more rep represent and reflect a group of non-advanced industrial democracies. And we can talk about our interests. And so they created the BRICS. And now in the last BRICS meeting in Johannesburg in South Africa, um, they decided to invite an additional six countries, mostly Middle East and North Africa, to join that summit. I would argue that those are the three most important sort of group of country meetings at a global level that exist. There are massive numbers of regional summits, of course, that exist. There are also massive numbers of multi-stakeholder summits that exist, governments and private sector and non-government actors, your Davoses and the rest, and those are all interesting, but very different than the, the primary government 
summits uh, that we have. Uh, NATO's obviously incredibly important from a security perspective. There's also a lot of talk about a G2, which doesn't exist, but nonetheless is the idea that when China and the United States are the most powerful countries in the world, um, that either the G2 is going to be aligned or confrontational, and that'll tell you a lot about what kind of a world order you have. And my own G0 that I started talking about, I guess about 12 years ago, which was the idea that no matter what your architecture, if you have a world where no country is prepared to exert or capable of exerting global leadership, whether we talk about being the world's policeman or the architect of global trade or um, the, the cheerleader and exporter of global values, that what you really have is a G0. Lots of leadership, but no global leadership. And I think we've kind of been in that G0 now for a bunch of years. So background questions about the different Gs and their summits led you to give an explanation for the name of your company. Uh, for, for the name of our media company, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And what's the G5? That's your favorite mode of transport. G5 is a plane. Yeah, I was going to say, wait a second. It's a wholly different G. My God, I know, a, I know. Yeah, it's okay. another joke we're going to have to cut. Another dad joke really? we're going to have to cut from the episode. I don't why know. Do you keep, why do you cut all of these they, jokes that you bring I, up? They, they surprise me sometimes. You're I like a them. repressed funny person. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> RFP? I'm an RFP. Yeah. So just overall, are these? Are, do we have too many summits? Or is convening of leaders, finance leaders, actual lead political figures from various countries. Is that always a good thing or can it be too much? It can be too much when the institutions really are no longer capable of serving the purpose that they had been intended to serve, but they they soldier on beyond their sell-by date. So is that true of any of these summits that you've been referring to? No, but I could argue that it's true of the Security Council. Uh, we the United, now at the United have, Nations. Yes, yeah. uh, and and the United Nations as an organization is incredibly important, uh, and we we have now just this week the United Nations General Assembly, and everyone from around the world sort of lines up, shows up in New York, and they, it does a lot of important work on global climate, increasingly on disruptive technologies, on on trying sustainable development for the eight billion people on the planet, you know, food aid, you name it. But the Security Council, which was created back in 1945. You gave permanent membership, which means veto power to stop anything from happening to all of the folks that won World War II. And it turns out that was a really bad formulation for an organization like this. Uh, and and it, was, it was really bad almost immediately. It was bad like at the end of the 40s when the Soviets decided to take a whole bunch of territory in Eastern Europe, and then you had the Berlin blockade, and suddenly the guy that you thought was your ally has become your erstwhile opponent and has the ability to veto anything at the Security Council. And you know nowadays, you've got India, which is this incredibly important economy and the world's largest democracy, and they can't well, not be a so advanced. member. <laughs> not so advanced, but still very important uh, playing a big role, an increasingly big role on the global stage, 
can't be a permanent member. You've got Japan, the third largest economy in the world, completely aligned with rule of law, the the, the UN uh, charter. They can't be a permanent member because they lost World War II. Same thing is true of Germany. And yet Russia is a permanent member and we consider them a war criminal. So it, it it's actually broken. It's, it's fundamentally broken. And, and by the way, everyone knows it. And it's irrevocably broken, right? Is, is there any reasonable process by which you could unlock the Security Council membership? There's no way that you could get any members with vetoes to expand membership with vetoes or to get rid of or water down their vetoes because right. they are because highly- by definition, by definition, if you have a veto, you're not going to vote for yourself to be off. But there's this interesting thing, the General Assembly, which of course is um, the group that includes all of the member states of the United Nations. So it's it's everybody. It's it's Burkina Faso, it's Malta, it's Andorra, it's you know, it's tiny little countries that then have a spot on the global stage. Um, there was an effort by, I believe it was Liechtenstein and Finland, and and they together got uh, passed a General Assembly agreement that whenever a Security Council member uses a veto, that member has to then come and explain why they use the veto to the General Assembly. And it's actually sort of annoyed the permanent members and has has made them somewhat less capricious yeah. about wanting to use that veto. Who's it annoyed more, like Russia or the US? Oh, it's definitely annoyed the Russians more because they're the country that it has become a functional pariah when it comes to rule of law. There's no other permanent member that actually wants to break the existing governance system of the world order. I mean, China absolutely wants a lot more power in existing multilateral institutions for itself. Um, they believe that the West is you know, very hypocritical in the way they use their power. They want to create additional architecture where they have influence, but they don't want to break the existing architecture. Russia wants to break the existing architecture. So in that regard, they are the principal problem in the Security Council and in many other organizations in the G20 where Putin was not allowed um, essentially to show up. I mean, even the BRICS, he couldn't come in person because South Africa is a member of the International Criminal Court and they would at least nominally be required to arrest Putin if he showed up in South Africa. Lula, the Brazilian president who just took over the presidency of the G20 immediately in Delhi said, we will not arrest Putin uh, at the G20 in Brazil. We would welcome him to come to Brazil. I want to go back to this point you made a moment ago about a potential G2. That's confusing to me. If it's two countries, why can't they just decide on an ad hoc basis to have meetings? And they sometimes do that. There have been bilateral meetings that happen on a sort of uh, ad hoc basis, what would be the advantage of having a sort of regularized G2 summit? Well, first of all, it's more of a concept than it is a summit. Yeah. But when you talk when you talk about the G2, you talk about the idea that there are a series of meetings and relations, kind of like the old uh, strategic and economic dialogue, the SED. 
and that the Americans and the Chinese together put together an entire, you know, sort of network of high, mid, and low-level meetings involving the entire sort of how we think about the things that matter for the U.S. and China in their ability to maintain a stable and, and hopefully sustainable relationship. Given that the U.S. and China are the most powerful countries in the world, uh, that means that what you put in that architecture, what you decide is important, ends up being things that get addressed at the global level and things that you don't really don't. And to the extent that you have a formidable network of relationships at the G2 level between the United States and China, other countries matter a lot more. And other countries' ability to put things on a global agenda matter a lot more. Having said that, there is no G2. There's nothing close to a G2. The strategic and economic dialogue has fallen apart, and, and that has made lots of other countries in the world a lot more important in what they can get done and what they can influence and also what they can ignore. You know, this is maybe a dumb question, but we say very blithely now that the two most important countries or powerful countries on earth are the United States and China. In what year would you say, or if you can say, did that become true? I mean, was, was it with the fall of the Soviet Union? Mm, so with the fall of the Soviet Union, Japan was still the second largest economy at that point. So uh, first of all, you would say when China outstripped Japan as second largest. And, and that, that's very meaningful because- But I'm not, I'm, I'm not just talking about the economy. I know. Uh, I'm also talking about the possession of nuclear weapons. And yeah. Mil and military. I, I assume you're talking about both of those things when you say the US and China are the two most powerful. So how does that factor? Well, Russia in? has a lot more nuclear weapons than China. Which is why I thought, I thought you would have said- that at some point in the late 80s or early 90s, the two most powerful nations- Were the Soviets and the Americans. Correct, not, not the Americans and the Japanese. Right, but it turned out also that the United States really misjudged the size of the Soviet economy, its capacity, CIA and other estimates, radically exaggerated what the Soviets were capable of doing. And so- Like the they did with the army. Yeah, and the, and, and the perception of how powerful the Soviets really were, I would say, you know, 70s, 80s was mistaken, was mistaken. And, and there's no question that perception of power and reality of power, uh, they affect each other, but they aren't the same thing. So you think China did not assume the number two spot for these purposes until sometime in the 90s? Until later, yeah, until like, you know, sort of around the, the turn of the century, I, I would say, even a little bit later. Uh, because keep in mind, the Chinese, you know, technologically, the Chinese were still seen to be a backwater. They were a very poor country. So they were the factory of the world for low-cost labor, but people never thought the Chinese would be able to build anything. The Japanese, I mean, think about, uh, you know, how the United States used to believe that Japan was going to be able to take over because oh. of ka Kaizen, right? And there. When I was in college in the late 80s, the fad on campus, one of my roommates did this, was to learn Japanese. Because sure. we thought all business opportunities or many business opportunities would be concentrated in Japan. And that didn't quite come to pass. And it, it required not just China having 40 years of 10% growth but also required China showing that they could first 
make meaningful innovations on the back of existing Western technology, not just steal it and rip it off, and then show that, no, they could actually create new advanced technologies themselves and be world leaders. I mean, right now, I don't think about nuclear weapons. I, I think that in any in the areas of advanced technology that really matter, the commanding heights of the 21st century, sustainable energy, wind, nuclear, uh, solar, I think about biotechnology, I think about quantum computing, I think about AI. The United States and China overwhelmingly are number, space are number one and two. And in some cases, China's number one, and most the United States number one. In, in some cases, and significant cases, China's number one, and no other country is close. That makes it very easy to say that you know, the U.S. and China are the two most powerful countries in the world. I'm just reminded of the heyday of people's thinking about Japan in the late 80s. And I remember, <laughs> I just remembered an old joke by Jay Leno that kind of crystallizes this sentiment that people had about, you know, the rising economic power of Japan. It was something like, you know, people wonder what's going on here. And you know, is there really a threat from Japan? And Jay Leno goes, well, look at it this way. The Japanese are buying our cities and we invented the McDLT which is a McDonald's cheeseburger whose innovation was you put the meat on one side. The cold is on one side. And, and the, the hot's on the other and side, And the hot's right? on the other side while the Japanese are buying our cities. But I, I thought that was a big deal. Did you see the South, speaking of that, did you see that meaningful South Korea innovation in produce? I did not. It's quite something. So they, they will sell you a seven pack of bananas already taken off the bunch. So there's seven individual bananas that are in a plastic wrap, one one tray of seven bananas. You, you're visualizing this. I'm visualizing it. I mean, they're lined should, up. Should all our hard... listeners visualize this as well? Well, it's all, almost like you'd see like, a, you know, a, a pound of chuck steak. I mean, this is like seven bananas lined up just in a foam and the plastic on top of them. But here's the innovation, Preet, here's the innovation, is that the seven bananas actually are at different levels of unripeness. Oh, it's a one-a-day so banana. So it coincides properly with the passage of time. It coincides. If, you, if you're only one person, if you're living at home by yourself, and a lot of South Koreans apparently are, at least the banana-eating South Koreans, or maybe there's only one banana eater in your household, and you eat one banana, say, every morning or every evening. It could go either way. Yeah, but the point by is day seven, it's going to be overripe. It's going to be, exactly, unless you But then you make the banana innovation. bread. The South Korean innovation. <laughs> and I just think, I, I, I thought when I saw that, you know what I thought? What'd you think? McDLT. McDLT. Look. That was a meaningful innovation. I have a chapter in my book yeah. that's about kind of meaningful innovations that you wonder why they didn't happen earlier. And it doesn't require, and I, I make the point about institutions generally, that they don't have to remain static. And you think, well, I need an engineering degree or some advanced scientific knowledge and expertise to invent something better and new. And the, exa the example that always got to me was the person who decided one day, maybe we should make ketchup bottles upside down. So yeah. the opening on the bottom to, oh take advantage of, to take advantage of gravity. Exactly. And you remember the commercial? I mean, we had ketchup for a long time that Heinz used to have a commercial. You had to hit it. Right? You had but to the commercial it. was, they paid money to get Carly Simon's song, the rights to Carly Simon's song, which is anticipation, anticipation. right? Yeah. Anticipation is making me wait. So they they turned the idea that it was really difficult and time consuming to get ketchup out of the bottle to put on your burger or to on your fries. To make that a feature and not a bug. To make, yes, to make it something that's like, I, 
I remember thinking, how would that work for like some other product or service like airline travel? Like toothpaste. So which came oh, first? Because toothpaste, now you do have, there are some, some brands of toothpaste where you can buy it. It has the plastic thing on the bottom. It stands upright and you just squeeze and it's already down there, right? But most toothpaste still is sold the wrong way. The one I've been talking to my kids about recently that I didn't mention in the book. Yeah. Was I explained to them until fairly recently, quite recently, when you traveled and you had a, you had a shitload of luggage, yeah. you carried it. I, I you know, our 83, your 83 year old grandfather would be carrying on his back or lifting up a suitcase. The guy who decided to put wheels, which had been invented many thousands of years ago on luggage deserves some kind of Nobel prize, but I don't think it's forthcoming. And the, the more recent um, wheel innovation on luggage, where it kind of rolls upright next to you as opposed to you yes, have to tilt the, it. That's so first they, so first so first they put two wheels. Two wheels. And now it's four. And now it's four. That's beautiful. Yeah. The four wheel innovation, I think, is a I'm significant waiting, innovation. I'm waiting for the motor. There is a motor. In the suitcase? In the suitcase. You can you have the little remote control or you have the thing and it just follows you along and you, there that that exists, of course. I'm ready for I'm ready for drone baggage. Okay. So <laughs> Going back to China for a moment and the G20 summit. So the leader of one of the two most powerful nations in the world, Xi, from China, did not show up. True. What's that about? Uh, doesn't like India. Uh, and uh, it was, the, the, but first of all- So it was a boycott of the fact that India by rotational requirement was due to host the G20 summit? It wasn't only that. It was that these guys have been increasingly fighting over lots of things. The- the, the border zone, of course, where uh, there's been a fair amount of violence over the past years, uh, and it's gotten more militarized. The fact is the Indians have a higher level of export controls against Chinese goods, as well as investment reviews than the Americans do against China right now. And uh, the, the, the Chinese really didn't like that. The, the, the Indians are you know, portraying themselves as the leaders of the global South, saying that China's not really a member of the global South, that, that they're wealthier, they're massive carbon emitters, um, they are the biggest creditors to a lot of the developing world, they can be rapacious in the way they treat these countries. And so India's standing up for the little guy. And, uh, you know, put all that together. And, and by the way, this wasn't new news. The Chinese told uh, the Indian government that, they, that Xi Jinping was not going to show uh, at least a month before the summit and send their premier instead, which is not low-level representation. And, and he did participate and participated constructively. And also, um, the Chinese have been speaking with the Americans for months about when Biden and Xi can meet. And the plan has been for months, the APEC summit in San Francisco in November. So this was not the Chinese saying, we don't want to be a part of the G20 I fully expect they'll show up in Brazil uh, going forward next year. But they they made a statement that they were going to, in a sense, display their displeasure at Modi. Also, of course, on the back of Russia uh, not showing up at the head of state level, Putin was not there. Uh, and that made it easier, uh, frankly, for Biden uh, to show the G20 as a summit where the Americans were very simpatico, very aligned with everybody there.
I'll be right back with Ian after this. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So as someone who is decidedly not an expert in diplomacy or international relations, I find it kind of puzzling these kinds of actions or stunts, whatever you want to call them. Does it have meaning that she decided not to go? Or am I correct to think of it or for people to think of it as kind of a meaningless stunt? Does it have an effect? No, no, it matters. It does matter. Why does it matter? It matters because the Chinese are also saying in part that they just had a successful BRICS summit, which doesn't have the United States or the G7, the advanced industrial democracies participating. And this is a place where the Chinese can set more of a global agenda that they want with those countries. They have the Belt and Road Summit where uh, they, you know, even though lots of countries are invited, this is primarily bilateral hub and spoke, China and their investment partners all over the world, they can have much more dominance of those organizations. So, I mean, it is really displaying, you know, some some gravity, some trajectory of how the country relationships that will affect the way power is distributed around the world and how decisions are made that do affect all of us, how that's likely to continue to emerge. I mean, geopolitics is a constantly shifting thing 
It has, it's kind of like a living, breathing organism. And with, with, with no, know, with no, as far as I can tell, yeah, not any particular clear rules or principles or rules of the road. With a bunch of principles uh, that are agreed to in very specific areas that, you know, countries will sign up for. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we have, again, we talked about a, there's a non-proliferation regime that a whole bunch of countries generally agree to. Um, there's, you know, been a, everybody agreed to the basic principles of the UN charter. And when the Russians break it with their invasion of Ukraine, a large majority of general assembly countries are willing to stand up and criticize that um, and condemn it. Why is that? Because the rules of the road have been broken. A country uh, has had its territorial integrity breached um, by an outside invader. That's a rule of the road. Now, it doesn't mean that invasions never happen, but when it does happen, mo almost everyone in the world says, we have a serious problem with that. Now, if it's the United States, what does it? Like in the second Iraq war, um, and the US is the most powerful country in the world, they can kind of get away with it, but countries will have long memories they will be angry as a consequence and they will bring it up for decades and use it to justify some of their own behaviors or some of their unwillingness to listen to the Americans. So, I mean, the very fact that those, that when you break the rules, it has consequences and lasting consequences also mean that those rules matter. So India got to host the G20 summit, as we mentioned, and it has been reported and has been treated as a huge coup for Prime Minister Modi, even though it was just, you know, their turn, they sort of acted like they were anointed by their peers, according to one New York Times article, uh, in a show of respect and elevation. But that's not quite true. But they made the most of it. Can you describe how big a deal the hosting of the G20 summit was for India, both domestically there and with respect to their image in the global community? Uh, it's a big deal because the timing was awesome. Hosting the G20 in and of itself is not necessarily a huge deal for a country. But I mean, you know, Indonesia hosted the year before. It wasn't nearly as important for the Indonesians uh, as it was this year for the Indians. And it won't be as much of a big deal for Brazil, though it'll be a, a fairly significant deal because you've got a, a president of Brazil that's really leaning into climate, reducing deforestation, having a carbon trading and emissions scheme, working with the rest of the world there. I mean, they, they, they will probably hit above their weight in ways that Brazil usually does not. But in the case of India, the timing was incredible. Why? Number one, fastest growing major economy in the world at a time where global economic concerns are significant. Number two, Modi is by far the most popular leader of any major democracy in the world. So he has the ability to get things done domestically and internationally because the opposition is weak and in disarray. Number three, the United States really is trying to build the relationship with Modi. And they are the only major country out there where it doesn't really matter if Trump or Biden wins in 2024, they'll have a really good relationship either way. And they're, you know, not just in terms of this G20 summit, but the quad, which they are now, you know, a big piece of with three advanced industrial economies. So they're the one piece that you'd say normally, well, they don't really fit. Well, actually, they're playing a significant role and it's security oriented. Um, so for all of those reasons and others I could point to, like, you know, all the technology investments which are now coming into India, 
um, the fact that they have engaged in a, a domestic policy of, of, of economic reform and technological innovation. Uh, all of those things really meant that this was a great coming out party for India on the global stage, a country that historically has not wanted to play a significant global role. Um, and and I, I think that that really um, made the Indians shine in this meeting. And it didn't matter at all uh, that the Chinese president didn't show. I, I don't think it undermined uh, India's successful uh, summitry in the slightest. Do you think Modi preferred not having Xi there? No, no. I think that on balance, you know, you're hosting the summit uh, you'd like all of the big, powerful countries to attend. I mean, and it's it, a it snub. Does, Whatever else snub. you call it, it's a snub. And you don't it like to be snubbed. It is a snub. I don't think you like to be snubbed. Right. But I mean, again, because it wasn't a surprise, it was orchestrated. I mean, like the the Chinese really didn't like that. Like two days after uh, a meeting with Biden, uh, suddenly they find out that the United States is going to boycott like their Olympics, like that 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 yeah. kind of thing. Like when you surprise a country with a diss with it's a snub, worse. it goes really so really. So it's a badly. softer. So it's a softer snub. Yeah, it's a much softer snub. What was accomplished? Let's talk about some of the issues that were uh, at the fore at the G20 summit. Climate. Nothing. Virtually nothing happened. Yeah, it was, was, that was that the expectation? Was that the expectation? Expectation was climate would be a little bigger. I mean, there was an announcement on biofuels that the Americans were a part of. There was an announcement on green hydrogen, but really there was there were no significant new commitments, hard commitments that were actually made on climate at the G20. That was a nothing burger. But is, is that the place where those kinds of things should have happened? Or are there other forums where climate can be advanced? I mean, primarily, of course, the most important would be the COP summits, which coming up um, in uh, in Abu Dhabi, and that changes every year. And again, Brazil's going to be hosting the global COP coming up. So that's why I mentioned they're important. Last year was in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. and uh, but But having said that, this was meant to be a development summit and a climate summit. It was reasonably successful as a development summit. It was not successful as a climate summit. Uh, Modi cares about both of those issues meaningfully, and there wasn't really global movement on, on the latter. What do we mean when we talk about development? Uh, we talk about the ability of multilateral institutions and the governments that are part of them, uh, the World Bank, um, the New Development Bank, others, uh, to be able to effectively drive investment, sustainable investment, and also deal with high levels of indebtedness among the poorest countries in the world. On that front, significant movement, both in setting a new direction for the global agenda, the prioritization of that issue on the agendas of um, the the main uh, economies in the world, and also commitments to actually start putting more paid-in capital to the World Bank, directing that money towards poorer countries in the world. Talk about increased infrastructure, um, rail, trucking, and and ports, and the rest, shipping um, from India through Africa, the Middle East, and Europe. All of those things were incremental, but meaningful, and a shift towards the global South, with India playing a leadership role. That is a big deal. If we, if we over the, I expect that in 10 years time, we will look back at this G20 as a change of trajectory in that direction. Do they spend any time talking about artificial intelligence? Uh, at the G20, very little. 
That's been primarily the G7, which started off with the Hiroshima G7 summit. There's been a lot of that at the European Union level um, with uh, their um, AI regulations that are being developed, probably the most sophisticated and complex so far. The United States, of course, with the White House meeting with more dominated by the private sector with the Senate hearings recently. And we're also gonna see some high level meetings this week um, at the United Nations General Assembly in New York. That's where the action is, nothing meaningful to G20. One more issue we haven't mentioned yet in this context of the G20, the war in Ukraine. Yeah. Any, any progress or further consensus building happening there? I think that the G20 announcement, they did have a communique. Uh, that communique condemned any um, invasion of another country's territorial integrity in the context of the UN Charter. It did not explicitly condemn Russia for the Ukraine invasion. Yeah, so, so isn't it proper to view that as kind of softer than what we have hoped? It's yeah. well, it's softer than last year in Indonesia, but it does more accurately reflect both India's sensibilities and the sensibilities of the G20 as a whole. The G7, they all believe that Putin is a war criminal. The G20 doesn't really understand why Ukraine gets all the attention aside from the fact that they're white Europeans compared to all of the other places where human rights are being massively walked all over, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East and where the Americans and Europeans don't care very much. So they don't like it. They don't like the economic impact of, you know, all of the sanctions that are hurting the poorest countries in the world a lot more than they're hurting the United States, for example. So I think that uh, it was important that you got a formulation that allowed a communique to be agreed upon by all G20 members in attendance, by the way, including Russia, uh, which was represented by Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. But it was also important under India's presidency of the G20 that the description of Russia-Ukraine came in the context of something that has the sensibilities of the global South and isn't Russia, Ukraine dominates the headlines all year, all year long, because that's not the way any of the global South actually feels. It occurs to me to ask you this question, as we talk about India and Russia and China, and the United States, and the complicated sort of chess game or dance that, that unfolds between and among those countries, where does Pakistan fall into that whole dynamic as either an ally or an adversary of the United States, and certainly as an adversary to India, particularly with respect to how everyone deals with Russia. Does that question make sense? Yeah, um, it, it has become a subsidiary problem to the China problem. Uh, Pakistan, of course, used to have a much closer relationship with the United States. Pakistan is now overwhelmingly supported economically uh, by China and is much more tightly aligned uh, strategically with China. India's relationship with China, as I mentioned, is deeply broken and confrontational. And India sees Pakistan as a component of that problem. There is obviously a direct India-Pakistan dynamic that plays out in terms of Muslim extremism and territorial uh, disputes and water disputes. But the biggest reality is the context of the China relationship. You know, I feel like as I was growing up, and being from India, and living in the United States, and wanting 
the country of my birth and the country that gave me everything else, to be allies and friends with each other, but then Pakistan was friendly to the United States. It was largely about the Russian equation. Is that just kind of out of the picture? It's really out of the picture. I mean, India, of course, historically had a very strong defense relationship with the Soviet Union. And that continued uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed with Russia. That relationship has degraded dramatically in the last two years of the Ukraine war, in part uh, because India is developing a closer strategic relationship with the United States that is including strong defense agreements, including uh, willingness to allow the Indians to produce fairly advanced componentry for military capabilities with the United States. So that's a big win for them. But in part because Russian military technology, which was never very good, and you know their MiGs are colloquially referred to as flying coffins in the Indian press, because you know, so there have been so many uh, you know crashes and malfunctions of Indian pilots on training missions. They can't get the spare parts for this military equipment going forward. The Russians are focused on their own war. They have huge supply chain problems. So, I mean, if you're India, you don't mind buying lots of oil inexpensively from Russia because, you know, oil is oil. It's unrefined and you're doing the refining in India and you're selling it on for a profit anyway. But on the military side, there are lots of reasons why that relationship is going away. Isn't part of it also there's some drift between the United States and Pakistan because of arguably Pakistan's sponsorship of terrorism, terrorism. and the harboring of Osama bin Laden. And yeah. is, that, is that a rift that is reparable or not? Um, it's hard to imagine uh, in the sense that the U.S.-India relationship has become so overwhelmingly strategic. It is much more important than it used to be. Modi, who has no real domestic challenges in the near term, has decided that he wants a much stronger U.S. relationship to be his global legacy, his foreign policy legacy for his premiership. So for all of those reasons, it's very hard to see a badly governed, deeply corrupt, very poor, kind of small uh, Pakistan being significantly improved its relations with the United States especially now that the U.S. has left Afghanistan. So, yeah. I mean, that that piece no longer is relevant. The U.S. needed Pakistan to a much greater degree when that provides potentially useful intelligence and also does or does not put American soldiers in harm's way on the ground in Afghanistan. That's all over. Yeah, you know, I should ask you then, since you raised it and some time has passed and people get to reflect and be thoughtful, since we departed Afghanistan in toto, is it your view that that was the right thing to do, notwithstanding the way in which the withdrawal took place? It's my view that that war went on for way too long with way too much mission creep. It was incredibly expensive. So the answer is yes. We needed to get out. But every administration since Bush has made serious, serious mistakes on the ground in Afghanistan. Every administration. The, the principal Biden mistake was not the decision to leave, but it was, I mean, not just the mistakes that were clearly made in estimates of whether the Afghan government would be able to continue to stand up for months or years as opposed to like minutes and days, but also the fact that a nominally multilateralist Biden administration, which wants so much better relations with the EU and you know with, with allies around the world, made this decision unilaterally without 
the necessary communications and consultations with US allies. And I'm not just talking about the Europeans here, I'm talking about you know Middle Eastern countries, the UAE, for example, others. And I think that that did real damage. Could you very briefly do some global civic education? Because you mentioned a couple of global institutions, and I thought it might be nice for you to explain what they do. First, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. What is the point of that organization? Uh, the point of the IMF is to provide uh, relief, debt relief and, and financing to countries around the world that are in uh, distress and using the money that they have available to also provide a framework uh, for economic and political reforms that will allow those countries to turn to a more economic, sustainable uh, set of policies and growth. In other words, you know, with financial crises and collapses around the world and, and spiraling debt and unsustainability, it's an effort to try to help smooth some of the, the dangers of uh, volatile financial markets and dislocations from globalization. They also have a lot of capability in uh, modeling um, economic growth and projecting economic growth. They're a place that you know, sort of everyone goes for ground truth around what our expectations are about the performance of various countries' economies around the world. Now do the same for the World Bank. Uh, World Bank, uh, and by the way, the, the uh, IMF is, has always, uh, by convention, um, been uh, appointed uh, by the Europeans, uh, the World Bank by convention appointed uh, by the Americans, um, and uh, the World Bank providing international um, aid and support uh, for developing countries, particularly the poorest countries all over the world um, around things like you know food and energy and sustaining projects and programs that will allow them to become more successful, helping to develop programs around gender inclusion and equality and improved education and all of those things. The World Bank is, is a financial institution, a multilateral financial institution that has, and both of these are paid in with membership and votes from all over the world, but that is focusing on that. Do you have a view on the new president of the World Bank? Audrey I Barber? do. I have. Who a I should strong... disclose is a, is a friend of mine, <laughs> and as a I was going to say, is a good friend of mine too. He was just here uh, at my house what two weeks ago. I really like him. I've known him for a long time. He is Ajay Banga. He's uh, someone who is uh, first of all has a huge amount of experience in the developing world, uh, understanding how challenging those markets are and will be given climate change, given lack of financial inclusion, given strong indebtedness, but also has private sector sensibilities. He was just CEO of MasterCard and you know wants the bureaucracy of the World Bank to be run effectively, wants to ensure that this organization can do the most it can with stretched resources uh, in a global environment that's becoming much more challenging especially for the poorest people in the world. Extreme poverty is increasing in the last few years. The World Bank has, and, and the headwinds from climate change are growing. So the World Bank has a much tougher job to do and, and they need leadership like Ajay. I think that he's, uh, I think he's a great choice. I'm really glad he got the job. Me too. Um, I think he's an extraordinarily capable and visionary person. 
He's also just a lovely guy. He is. Say, right? Yeah. Does it matter to the world that the new World Bank president is an Indian American, someone who's born elsewhere? Uh, I think it's nice, but I mean, I, I think it's overwhelmed by his actual capabilities. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it definitely mattered that his first major public multilateral summit was the India G20 run by Modi. Like that, that, that helped. That definitely helped. But that was coincidental and random. Ian Bremmer, thank you for coming on the show. As always, it's a, it's always a delight to talk to you. Great, this is a lot of fun, man. My conversation with Ian Bremmer continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. In the bonus for insiders, we discuss the death of Wagner Group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin and the involvement of Elon Musk's Starlink in the Russia-Ukraine war. But increasingly, in the digital world, technology companies exercise sovereignty. They decide who wins and loses. Sometimes they decide who wins, who lives and dies. That wasn't true five years ago. That's, that's just a radical transformation of the way we think about power. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week by talking about Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, which took place, of course, over last weekend. The festivities, which this year welcomed in the Jewish year 5784, is a chance to take in the sweetness of a fresh start before the more somber holiday of atonement, Yom Kippur. Jews dip apples in honey, blow the shofar or ram's horn, and perform tashlich, a casting off of the old that usually consists of throwing breadcrumbs into a body of water. The holiday is all the sweeter in New York, given its staggeringly long history here. The first Rosh Hashanah in the Big Apple took place in 1654, and it's a pretty inspiring tale. In August and September 1654, around 25 Jews arrived in what was then New Amsterdam, in the Dutch colony of New Netherland. They were the first Jews ever known to have been in what is now New York. All but a few of the immigrants came from a single boat that had originated in Recife, Brazil. They were refugees fleeing brutal Portuguese persecution. Many of the new immigrants are believed to have held a Rosh Hashanah service only a week after their arrival, on September 12, 1654, or 5415 in the Jewish calendar. This is widely believed to be the first Jewish holiday ever celebrated in North America. No one is certain where the service took place, but many believe that it was at a private home on the corners of what are now Broad and South William Streets in Lower Manhattan pretty much exactly where Vox's New York office stands today. The immigrants worshipped inside because New Netherlands governor Peter Stuyvesant was not known for being particularly tolerant of different faiths. In fact, Stuyvesant attempted to have the Jewish arrivals expelled, even calling the Jewish people deceitful, very repugnant, and hateful enemies and blasphemers of the name of Christ. The Jewish immigrants, however, petitioned to the Dutch West India Company, Stuyvesant's employer, of which several prominent Dutch Jews were members. The company overruled Stuyvesant and his bigotry, and the Jewish immigrants were ultimately allowed to stay in New York, where they thrived. One, Asser Levy, who may have served as a cantor during the first Rosh Hashanah, went on to become the first North American Jew to own his own property and became a respected merchant and supporter of Jews and Christians alike. 
The Jews who celebrated Rosh Hashanah in New York some 369 years ago went on to establish in 1655 Congregation Shirith Israel, the oldest Jewish synagogue congregation in the country. The Orthodox synagogue is still going strong today, one of over 1,000 places of Jewish worship in New York City, serving some 1.6 million local Jewish people. The spirit of religious and cultural tolerance that makes New York so special in 2023 also began to take hold in New Amsterdam. This was especially true a few years after the first Rosh Hashanah, when political leaders in old Amsterdam sent the still recalcitrant Stuyvesant new guidelines for how he should treat other faiths. The Chamber's words to Stuyvesant are just as powerful today, quote, The consciences of men ought to be free and unshackled, so long as they continue moderate, peaceable, inoffensive, and not hostile to the government. Such have been the maxims of prudence and toleration by which the magistrates of this city have been governed. And the consequences have been that the oppressed and persecuted from every country have found among us an asylum from distress. Follow in the same steps, and you will be blessed. End quote. Ashana Tova, or Happy New Year to you and yours. And may we continue to live by this policy of tolerance and mutual respect. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Ian Bremmer. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. You can also now reach me on threads. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tadashore. The senior producer is Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is Noah Ozilai, David Kurlander, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.